Welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. It is our season five finale. We have a special doubleheader, uh, Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch and uh, 2001's The Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, are these, I, technically, these one of these are my pick? Are they both, both my picks, Chris? How do we yeah, do this this time? I was doing new films this season. You were doing old ones, and you did Tenenbaums. And I originally I was planning on doing West Side Story for the new one. Snooze. But yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the film, but it, I feel like there's just so much more to talk about, especially since uh, I didn't really realize that they had put French Dispatch on premium vod yeah uh until you told me so it just seemed like a no-brainer and i'm super excited because we're also welcoming onto the cast a uh somebody that i met while doing one of his podcasts this is harry from the try love podcast welcome harry hey thanks chris uh, it's really great to be here especially for the uh, season finale and especially to talk about wes anderson because i love him so much um and sometimes i feel like i'm the only one in the world who's crazy about french dispatch so i'm really excited to talk about <laughs> oh that. this is gonna be a spicy episode i can feel oh, it boy. Already. <laughs> oh boy i might have to moderate um yeah so uh, before we get into uh, all things wes harry can you tell us a little bit about uh try love for those listening we do kind of have listeners both locally here in minneapolis as well as um all over but uh i think your cast does a great job at uh diving into movies even no matter where you're at so can you tell people what try love is yeah, thanks. It's awesome that you have uh, listeners all over because we certainly don't, uh, mostly because <laughs> Trilove is a um, podcast about movies that me and my friends see at the Trilon uh, Cinema, formerly Micro Cinema, which is an independent movie theater in um, Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, very near to all of our apartments. Um, so we started a few years ago and it's been a lot of fun. But, you know, if you don't go to the Trilon, um, I mean, they show movies that a lot of people have seen. So you could maybe um, check that out. Um, but yeah, it's it's great. You can find it at, uh, I believe it's Trilove Podcast um, on SoundCloud and Spotify and all that stuff. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Werner Herzog fans, uh, they just went through a selection of films that they did repertory screenings of here in Minneapolis. So any of his filmography might be interested in diving into. They got some great episodes about that. Uh, what's your latest? Oh, well, we actually just did our uh, awards season, which we do once oh, a year. Yeah. So that's the last episode that just came out. A really monumentally terrible place to start if in the off chance that you're interested because it's like four hours long and we just argue with each other a lot and we find it charming probably but like if you don't know us you we probably just come off as as really pretentious um, <laughs> shitty film dudes which you know i'm we are um but before that we did batman returns which was a lot of fun because we had a really good guest on that one and Sweet. um yeah and that wasn't at the trial on or anything we just wanted to do a christmas movie which that technically is so um I, I like that episode a lot Cool. Perfect. Thank you so much, Harry. Let's yeah, thank you. dive in uh, to The French Dispatch. This is uh, Wes Anderson's 10th film, correct? Um, sure. I, yeah. I think, I, think I counted that right. Yeah. Um, the uh, auteur has been known for his basically entire uh, run of movies since uh, 1996's Bottle Rocket. I feel like we should probably start with a little personal background. Yeah, I got to. I think that I need to... Uh, kind of take the reins and go first because my bias is uh, is kind of ridiculously apparent um, right from the get-go <laughs> because I 
to my knowledge, I'm the only person that named uh, his own child after a Wes Anderson character. Oh, my God. <laughs> so my nine-year-old son's name is Dignan, which is uh, Owen Wilson's character. Amazing. Wow. What Rocket. a great choice. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so I've been obsessed uh, since I was a teenager. And uh, my you know yearbook quote for my senior year of high school was a quote from Bottle Rocket. And I've just been a hardcore fan ever since. Though I have to admit, I, as I said earlier, I might need to moderate because I have kind of gone lukewarm on him over the years which oh, okay. is feels kind of dirty to say as somebody who named their child after one <laughs> yeah, of his you're characters committed at this point you have to like his movies exactly yeah. exactly but i i i do have to say i i came to french dispatch as well as my rewatch of royal tenenbaums on its 20th anniversary um with a lot of uh baggage not to infer uh or should i say make a reference to the horribly obvious metaphor in 2007's Darjeeling Limited. Do you uh. do you have? I mean, we've been friends since high school, Dan. But I yeah. I feel like you were more like a Rushmore guy, correct? Yeah. So I came to West through Rushmore. Uh, I saw the trailer, became obsessed with the trailer. Um, was able to get it. I think I couldn't see it in the theater because it wasn't playing anywhere in Milwaukee that my parents would let me go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I finally got it on video whenever that would have been, I guess, 99. Uh, and it be basically became my favorite film for the next decade, I would say. Uh, and so I, I probably have seen Rushmore a hundred times. Uh, I, it was one of those films I'd watch over and over again. Um, you know, Royal Tenenbaums came out after that, adored that film when it came out. And then, yeah, everybody has a, I think if you are a true Wes Anderson fan, you kind of have uh the ups and downs with his films didn't love everything he did after that but i would think grand budapest was just a masterpiece as well mm-hmm. so i've seen everything he's ever done except for isle of dogs um and to you know uh i i love every i love an aspect of every one of his films but i don't sort of love them overall uh but yeah i mean i think he's one of if not the greatest american director working right now i'm just gonna throw that out there whoa whoa okay harry you go Wow, I'm in really good company. I was I'm excited to know that that y'all are such big fans. Um, Chris, you didn't say what the bottle rocket quote is in your yearbook. You got to do that. Oh, okay, it was uh, <laughs> everybody wants to know what's next. Why can't I just enjoy this moment? Which, That's great. Yeah, Owen Wilson good. says to uh, Anthony uh, Luke Wilson's character uh, near the end when they're kind of wrapping things up with uh, James Con's character, but before you know they have the wool pulled from behind their eyes. Right. Man, what a heartbreaking movie. What a heartbreaking yeah. filmography Wes Anderson has. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, people don't really talk about on. how fucking sad all of his yeah. movies oh my are. Gosh. Um yeah, no, I'm I love really fucking sad movies. So um I actually just saw Bottle Rocket. It was like the last one in my filmography to knock mm. off this year. Um and we did an episode on it, so I hate to oh, amazing. It again, I gotta go back and listen to that. It's great. I really, really like that movie. I'm a huge fan of all of Wes Anderson's and it's a it's a weird thing where like I feel like I've had to be a real defender of Wes Anderson through the years, especially um, as he's sort of like it, more of his more idiosyncratic movies like Darjeeling Limited or um, Grand Budapest Hotel, although that one is really critically beloved. But mm-hmm. um, I I think I I really agree with Daniel just in the sense that like I feel like as an art auteur, um, however you feel about auteur theory, he's he, all of his movies are like 
really interacting with an idea and uh, yeah. a sort of evolving concept of his that that feels really literary and feels really complete. And he's you can tell that he's not just sort of using an aesthetic, he's exploring a theme, you know, mm -hmm. that develops over time. And so in a really unique way, um, I feel that all of his like each of his new movies can enhance the previous movies. Um, and I've I've yeah. really come to appreciate that, especially as I get older, you know, like I just mm -hmm. rewatched Royal Tenenbaums and coming back to that, um, I found so much new to enjoy in it, knowing what I know now from French Dispatch and from Grand Budapest Hotel and, and whatnot. Um, and uh, I feel that way about even the movies of his that I'm not crazy about. Like, for instance, I really don't like Isle of Dogs, sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, I, I think everybody's got one, right? Like, that's that's kind yeah. of an interesting aspect of him as well. But I think I love all almost all of his other movies. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. He's like, he's a real... Um, He's a real argument for auteurs, even if you don't necessarily feel great about auteur theory, I think. Absolutely. I think that uh, while that's a spicy take to have, that he's the best uh, living American filmmaker, I do think there's an argument to be made at the very least, because uh, as we'll get into it, um, from Royal Tenenbaums all the way to French Dispatch, it's really hard to find anybody else with a through line that, that with 20 years uh, worth of work. Yeah pretty steady work even you know when he took up you know many years to create his stop motion pictures it's still you know as many people met, said when fantastic mr fox came out and when isle of dogs came out uh it's you undeniably still a wes anderson movie yeah. even though it's right. animated yeah. so let's get into this french dispatch uh what is it it's kind of hard to nail down uh i might go so far as to say that it's his uh most disparate attempt at a cohesive story uh, and that's saying a lot for somebody that made uh, Grand Budapest Hotel which had a sprawling cast and nearly every picture he's made has some kind of ensemble element to it if not is just straight an ensemble film the plot log line is a love letter to journalists set in an outpost of an American newspaper in a fictional 20th century French city that brings to life a collection of stories published in the French Dispatch magazine. Is that really what it's about? Because I just watched this film and it really felt like it wasn't actually about the journalists. Am I wrong in that? That, God, that's tough. Because like he went into this movie wanting to make uh i think a movie about the new yorker right he's obsessed with the new yorker right which is you know i i mean i was i kind of grew up hating the new yorker and then right. went to school and had a class on it and became obsessed with it uh so i'm kind of definitely in that uh boat where it's like oh yeah this is like a new yorker article or um issue of the new yorker essentially mm -hmm. as a movie form um i thought the frame would be way more um kind of full in the store and it's really not like the concept of making the magazine and stuff like that it it's there but it's essentially three short films kind of stitched together very much yes. an anthology yeah yeah and that's kind of what he said too he basically said i wanted to make a movie about the new yorker i wanted to make a french movie which okay uh and i wanted to make uh a court a sort of omnibus uh like a portmanteau like type film uh and he kind of like smudged them all together and that's kind of what the french dispatch is which when i say it out loud sounds insane does this not sound insane like right. it's like sort of like what's going on here 
But it's almost it's something that Wes Anderson can do at this point in his career. It's it's so funny how like yeah, go ahead. It's yeah, sorry. Um, it's it's like he's making movies to spite his detractors, right? (laughs) Like even as a Wes Anderson staunch defender, I'm like the the criticism that he is this like cutesy petty bourgeois filmmaker making films about sad rich people. It's like. I, I want I'm like Wes, please like you have to like prove them wrong, and he just keeps doubling down on it, which you have to kind of respect, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, it's like like literally the guy makes a a movie shouting out the New Yorker. It's like could you get more sort of like yeah. extreme East Coast bougie than that? Right. I do think there's something to be said though to uh, that really is more apparent in this film than any of his others. The fact that, and I got stuck on this. It took me a while to figure it out while watching the film. Is like, why the hell is this dispatch f- for a magazine in this small Kansas town? Right, like it, the New Yorker did all these dispatch like feature stories, of course, because yeah. it's New York City's beloved institution, right? Like the home mm-hmm. of the you know upper class elite, you know. But with this it kind of clicked to me at some point where it's like okay number one this guy literally tried to like before the new yorkers archives were online in 2001 he attempted like right after royal tenenbaums got came out and he started making a decent chunk of change for himself and a name for himself he this guy attempted to buy the entire archives of the new yorkers (laughs) of course he did and this is dream right and like the end, it's not only weird because like somebody would, you know, deign to do something like that, but specifically for this kind of guy who, yes, clearly has shown himself to be a New Yorker reader with the Royal Tenenbaums, but like, you know, rewind five years to Bottle Rocket, and this is a guy just like making movies with an eight millimeter, sixteen millimeter camera in his backyard in like outside of Austin, Texas. Like yeah. this isn't a New York City. Paris kind of guy, and so well, by, that's a what really do you, what good do you point. think? Yeah, that's like uh, so. The the one of the layers to the New Yorker is that it wasn't made by people from New York, right? Sure. Like the New Yorker yeah. started as essentially, and that's who Bill Murray's character here is supposed to be: Harold Ross and William Sean, who took over from him after he died in the fifties. Um, it, it's it, <laughs> the thing about the New Yorker, and I think the when people make fun of it, I always kind of have to laugh at when people get kind of um, upset about how snobby it is. That's kind <laughs> yeah, of right. the point, right? It's like essentially people from middle America made that magazine as sort of their idea of what an East coast intellectual elite would want to read. Oh. And so there's this layer of irony to the whole thing that, you know, I don't know that that's part of it in sort of Bill Murray's character. But I think right. Wes Anderson to me is somebody who grew up in Texas who never right. wanted to stay in Texas, always felt like an alien. That's the perfect, the New Yorker is the perfect magazine for him because it's a magazine created by outsiders trying to create this sort of curated yeah. little snow globe world of intellectualism, which doesn't exist outside their magazine. And uh, I think that what you just mentioned is is so um, insightful because I think it's a really important thing to remember when it comes to the major theme of alienation sort of across all of Wes Anderson's films, right? Is that mm-hmm. just like picture the child Wes Anderson in Texas, you know? <laughs> and like you do that in all of his characters from, you know um, – Steve Zizou to the Royal Tenenbaums to the Moonrise Kingdom kids, they make a lot of sense, right? They're people who don't feel like they belong in the environment that they're a part of. 
who feel right. like deeply alienated from it. And um, you get less of that in um, French Dispatch because the POV is so solidly belonging to the journalists. Um, but there's sort of an interesting through line there as well that uh, maybe we can explore a little bit later on. But I really like that point about Wes Anderson in Texas, right? It, it really yeah, makes... I, yeah. I think that there's something to be said for not only like the outsiderness in general, but also like um, you mentioned, Dan, that like the New Yorker is uh, the them these outsiders trying to create this snow globe world. Right. Yeah. And this intellectualism is almost like, uh, automatically branded with this self-aware artifice that yeah. very, very much is in line with Anderson's entire oh, career. Right. Artifice right. is a, is a fantastic word for it. Right. Because like all of his movies are so affected and like I- irony has never really been the right word for me with Wes Anderson, because I think no, there's something yeah. much more earnest behind that. And I, I feel Agreed. like a lot of people don't get Wes Anderson because they think he's making fun of something. Um, when in, in reality, it's just sort of like all the world's a stage sort of setup, right? Like all of his movies are supposed to look artificial. They're kind of supposed to look like somebody gesturing at what they think something is, right? I think that's even why so many of them are framed the way they are with like almost every single one of his movies is like a, a book or it's a retelling of something else, right? Yeah. yeah. Like a play, Rushmore, right? There, right. He's always oh, yeah, yeah. pointing that he's creating something on screen. And there's a level of abstraction between reality and you, just like there's a level of abstraction between reality and these characters so often. And you could even look at that with just the act of journalism in general, especially like feature style journalism. And it's I mean, I think that if you could look at so many examples in the film, but um, I really felt it. Um, as the credits rolled, I really wasn't thinking about the three main stories. I kept coming back to just like the opening local color segment oh, with so Owen Wilson, right? Where it's just like <laughs> you can imagine, like he's so well known for world building, but it's such a like you know strange, distorted kind of world building, but not one that like makes you feel uneasy. One that makes you feel like invited, and you. Mm-hmm. very much like that's the point of like creating right. a snow globe world right is that you want to be there that you can kind of indulge in that fantasy and uh even though you know a journalist is journalist's job is to take that outside perspective and kind of find a way to map it for your reader you very much become this kind of like lens right because absolutely and owen wilson even like literally says that uh his character right in the film where he's like uh uh, Bill Murray's trying to convince him to like add something, you know, warm and, you know, more popular into his piece right. about, you know, the scummy aspect of the little village they live in. And he's just like, nope. <laughs> Even though it's literally there, it's just he's he gets to choose what he puts in there. Yeah. So does Wes. And that's that's a big part of why French Dispatch worked for me so well, I think. I mean, first of all, I think that Wes Anderson's writing has always been one of his great undervalued assets. I think that in a lot of ways, all of his movies have been sort of like consolation prizes for the fact that he didn't get to write for The New Yorker. Right? So like, <laughs> it's, it's almost um, like more obvious than ever at this point, but like the writing in that movie really shines. Um, and for a movie about writing, I think that's so important, right? And especially for a movie like all of his movies, that's sort of about taking, transforming something into a story and and what that does, right? And like the process of narrativizing um, events as they happen, and how important the storyteller themselves is 
within that and and what they bring to it um becomes it it that's really central in importance to all of his movies right i think all of his movies are sort of about like characters who are alienated from their own sort of legacy or from their own perception of themselves in the worlds who are trying to sort of preserve that or even sort of like continue that or imbue the world with sort of the spirit of what they want it to be um and i i think that that making those themes explicit the way that he does in the french dispatch really works because it's like it's such a direct continuation for me from royal tenenbaums to something like um life aquatic to um like uh grand budapest hotel right which is all about this guy who's trying to hold together the world right as it falls apart around him and i like i think that that's a really important through line that that is as maybe as important if not more important than the aesthetic style which is what everyone talks about when they talk about wes anderson right yeah let's talk about let's talk about these things <laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course you want to for sure <laughs> because okay. i think I, just the the piggyback on what you're saying i think with french dispatch for me personally and we're gonna dive right into opinions because i feel like it Do um it. i think you're making an argument that is interesting to me because I felt almost the exact kind of opposite. Interesting. Where I felt like the aesthetics here, look, I love the Wes Anderson aesthetic style. I just think it's fun. It's interesting. It's kind of a, a beautiful trademark that he has on a lot of his shots and coloring. Uh, I don't take it too seriously. Like a lot of people do like it's, it is what it is. It's, it's, it's his look. Um, I always, I find it distracting though when I can't hold on to some sort of emotional narrative that's very clear. Like, it's like right out there, right in my face. Like in Royal Tenenbaums, it, it's just there the entire time. Sure. Every scene is just yeah. uh, filled with this very clear and confident emotional narrative that that story is doing. Um, and it, when it doesn't work for me, like uh, Steve Zizou, like there, there was an attempt to make a strong father-son emotional sort of story arc there but it didn't really work for me and that's one of the, the lesser films i think of, of his work and i can kind of mirror the his ability to make that story clear and concise and make sure it has an, an emotional hook to it that's fascinating, versus my yeah. enjoyment of it yeah well right? like, it, sorry go ahead well I was, I was gonna say like the french dispatch i just i couldn't what you're saying totally makes sense but i couldn't get my hooks into it and that's I couldn't a great really figure out what the emotional arc was going on. Right. And that's a, that's a really great criticism of my reading, right? Because um, Chris, you said early on, like that the, the journalist didn't feel central to the narrative to you. And that hit me sort of weird because to me, they are the narrative very literally, right. In that we are watching these events unfold through them. And to, to a real extent, we don't actually see any of the events occur in this movie. We just read about them in the words of the journalists and through the perspective of the journalist Mm -hmm. to the point where like the three, aesthetic styles that we explore and the free three presentational styles we explore were very clearly sort of um frames for that that styling by the the journalists but you're you're still not wrong right like the journalists themselves they are our pov but they aren't characters interacting with other characters which is i think what daniel's saying right like i think royal tenenbaums works so well because the characters are so vivid and distinct and um empathetic right but here, like we we get this, we have a very strange relationship with the main characters because they're kind of not the main characters at all. They're observers, like we're observers, and it can it can create a sense of um, disjointedness to the narrative for sure. 
Yeah. And I felt this kind of like, I have uh, on my notes here, Jeffrey Wright highlighted compared to the other two journalists mm-hmm. of the three main stories, Tilda Swinton's character and uh, Francis McDormand's character. I feel like of the three, Wright's character is the most fleshed out of the three. Uh, but you have definitely, you know, me second guessing my argument because of, you know, what, not just what you were saying, but also what I was saying about like the point of a journalist is to provide that lens. But like very much until the Swinton story, I'm completely enraptured by Benicio del Toro and Lea yeah. Sadu. And t- I mean, to to make Tilda Swinton like one of like the most interesting actors of right. modern times, a sideline character, just like it, it, like some maybe he's doing that on purpose. But it felt it felt wrong to me. Um, <laughs> but also very impressive that. She, He's able to do that while I'm just completely uh, sucked into um, the story of the the prisoner and the guard. Um, right. Same thing with uh, Francis McDormand's story. Like to have me focusing more on Timothy Chalamet, who I'm not even like a huge fan of, but like she gets. I don't know. I just I it just felt incongruous to me. But sure. maybe that's part of the point. Well, and I'm- one of my biggest concerns. And I'm curious uh, what you guys think. Not concerns. In- curiosities is that like this also feels like just i thought it immediately um as the movie was wrapping up with the obituary like this is something where i'm going to feel more connected to these characters upon rewatch and wes anderson if nobody else is a guy that knows how to make movies you know destined for rewatches yeah well it's funny you mentioned that uh the new yorker who is it richard brody is that his name Oh, yeah. Uh, he's like, you have to see this movie twice to even understand it. Mm-hmm. He might be right. I've seen it once. Yeah, I, I also don't think we should well. be listening to the New Yorker's opinion of the New Yorker. Right. I mean, <laughs> they did like a whole thing We loved it. it. <laughs> they did a whole thing with it. There's like radio interviews. There's yeah. cast reading old New Yorker stories. I kind of love it. It's so <laughs> slimy. Oh, right. it's, so, it's perfect for the New Yorker, right? It's like you're yeah. proving <laughs> Wolf Anderson right. <laughs> true, true. Um, yeah, so. I really liked what you said. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm interested now to, to think through this, right? Because like I, French Dispatch and, and Life Aquatic are two of my, I would put them in the highest pantheon of Wes Anderson's wow. interesting, interesting. Maybe it's huh. just like a, maybe it's a theme thing. Like I think I, because I agree with Chris's criticisms and I think that the most maybe the most damning criticism you can make of French Dispatch is that, in my opinion, the maybe arguably the most important story to sort of fleshing out the bones of the theme of the movie, Francis McDormand's, is also far and away the least engaging. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and I maybe that's because of Timothée Chalamet or like, but but like what sh- what Francis McDormand is doing in that story for the themes of the movie, right? About like taking this thing that is actually sort of it's it's complicated and um and performative and a little bit silly and pretentious and small and it she's elevating it into something with grace and history and because because those kids are worth it and because that history is worth it and what they were fighting for is worth it even if they didn't really know what they were fighting for right and like for her to lionize that narrative because she believes in it and then for her editor to defend that narrative and believe in it is like very important to what the movie's doing. Mm. But like, it's also not, it's also the least interesting, right? Because like, Mm -hmm. you don't really want to connect with Timothée Chalamet's character because he's played by Timothée Chalamet and he's, he's (laughs) pretentious and he has this annoying relationship with these other characters. And because I think that this is a little bit like, I don't generally agree with the, the sort of like idea that Wes Anderson is just so interested in his own, 
fancifulness that he loses the plot a little bit, but it is a dis- it's a terribly Wes Anderson move to make <laughs> a, a story about a ch- children's revolution in <laughs> posh France, right? And have it be all about the fashion and all about the the sex and the um the iconography. It's yes, yeah. it's it's tough. It's a tough thing to like to defend, even though I think it's very important to what the movie's doing, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the big question I have though with all of this and you know, hearing about the writers and their interactions with their stories and how they're viewing the world as sort of maybe a throughput here is definitely something I can think about on a rewatch. But I do wonder if you're sitting down at a script table with him, how many writers are on this? Like four? Well, he's the only credited writer, but yes, the story was uh, by not only Wes, but Roman Coppola, like common Hugo, con- contributor, usually, yeah. and Jason Schwartzman. Yeah. So it's sort of like I... And I'm just, I'm trying to put on my studio production hat right now. And I'm <laughs> like sort of like, and I'm sort of like, oh, if we had Hendrix on the show, would Hendrix look at this script and be like, I don't know. Like, what is this? Like, what is, what is this yeah. all about? I, I think mean, the, the big question I have is you're going to make a film like this. Is this actually a feature film? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, this is an Indian paintbrush movie, which is Stephen Rail's company, and he's been with Wes ever since Darjeeling. And yeah. we, we, you guys mentioned, you know, your low points, and that's my personal <laughs> low point of <laughs> Anderson's of career. <laughs> it, it, it feels like that was very much a transition from Wes trying to like take input from others to suddenly like he found this guy rails who's just going to throw money at him no matter what he does and he's been an automatic green light city since 2007 and i don't that is think a really good point this is the kind of movie that yeah. only wes anderson could make a hundred right nobody else would give him give it the time of day absolutely right. to the point where people are like there was there was like some memeing going on with uh, like the standing ovation at Cannes with French Dispatch, right? Where it's just like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's to the point where it's, you know, comical almost how uh, just how free reign, how much free reign this man has had. And obviously there's fanboys like us that are going to. Right. Just- I was going to say, right. Yeah. That's, that's like where my fanboyism shows up, because like, right. especially when you consider like the type of movie he's making and the type of person he, right. Like he's a, he's a cis hat white dude. He, um, Mm. I I actually don't know if he's hat. Sorry. Uh, Apologies to Wes Anderson, if that's not true, but um, he, he's like, he is a a safer bet than like a lot of other filmmakers would be. Right. And that, that is kind of frustrating, but like, and, and so it makes me feel a little bit guilty when I say like, isn't that great though? Isn't it awesome? (laughs) I know, right. You can make whatever the fuck he wants. Like, isn't that exactly what you want him to do is to like thumb his nose at the people who are like saying, which is particularly hilarious because I feel exactly the opposite about Quentin Tarantino. Right. Who's like, (laughs) and I'm like, Oh, fuck off with like once upon a time in Hollywood and all those foot shots and everything. It was like, that movie was interminable. And like, but then French dispatch goes out and I'm like, Oh, I love once upon a time. I don't know you guys are crazy. (laughs) Yeah. That's fair. No, no. I also disliked it. Um, (laughs) But I think that when, I mean, when it comes down to it, uh, one of my, so that we can kind of find a transition point to talk about Royal Tenenbaums, where maybe we might be in more agreement overall. I have to point out one of the most interesting kind of uh, inverse relationships of uh, critics in response to his films. Um, uh, you have the critics 
um, that have kind of stayed with him over the years. He yeah. this movie, you know, um, does isn't universal acclaim uh, solidly in the seventy percent. Like you mentioned earlier, Harry, like Grand Budapest is seemingly like his high point uh, right. critically, critically of his career. It's going to be hard to match that if it even harder to exceed it um, from this point on. Um, but this is very much in the realm of you know the most most of his movies um besides you know the earlier ones rushmore and royal tenenbaums which also had universal acclaim right and the the example i'm going to throw out here is one of dan's favorite critics oh, love this guy he's the best. <laughs> he's the best mr mick fucking lasalle of the san francisco <laughs> chronicle who gave one of the most glowing reviews of royal tenenbaums when it came out but has now come to seemingly loathe what Wes Anderson has oh, done. Oh, wow, what happened? Uh, you know, it's interesting. Let's, let, we'll start with French Dispatch because that's where he is. The quote I have from him is, the artistic signature is unmistakable. 30 seconds in, you'd know you were watching a Wes Anderson movie. But Anderson's human connection seems to have short-circuited so that his irony now bypasses the world and becomes an ironic contemplation of his own work. This is a dead end, and it's just not interesting. Compare that. Hold up. Yeah. Hold up. Hold up. Compare that with uh, a more measured review, um, Dana Stevens of Slate. And while Dana hasn't been with Slate forever, uh, you had uh, uh, Dave Remnick um, of Slate in 2001 disparaging Royal Tenenbaums uh, for a lot of the same kind of criticisms that Mick LaSalle just gave. But Dana now in 2021 says the French Dispatch is a movie made with such deliberate patient skill and such brio that its meandering structure and oddly low emotional temperature come off as intentional choices rather than errors of artistic judgment. Even if it's not my favorite flavor of Wes Anderson licorice, nothing is there by accident. <laughs> I feel like that's where I'm at. That's now, fair. I'm wondering... Harry, if you agree with this quote from a very glowing review of Dispatch, it's from Clarice Lawfrey of The Independent. Uh, she says, the, like the very best of Anderson's film, Dispatch is both utterly exquisite and deceptively complex, a film that, like the finest of dishes, is even richer in its aftertaste. Yeah, I mean, mm. I think that, I, I don't know, I fall in a, in a weird place with it, right? Because I think that it is complex in the sense that there's so much to talk about with it, right? And I feel mm -hmm. kind of bad because I, I sort of like short-circuited our own discussion of the aesthetic. And I think this is like one of his most thoughtfully designed and arranged movies. Yeah. There are some shots in it that are just so well organized yeah. and like created that it's like nobody else could get something like that, right? Um, and so I love it for that. But I, I think that that, it's it's strange, right? Because like I, this feels emotionally and and um, emotively very similar to the Grand Budapest Hotel to me, in yep. that there is sort of a third act fall where all of a sudden, retroactively, the entire movie becomes extraordinarily melancholy and wistful and nostalgic and about things that are gone and will not come again. Um, and mm. it's this movie maybe is even like better at sort of. Um, prefiguring it than than budapest is although budapest is great at it because like you know it's an obituary from the from the drop right and so like i don't know i think i think that like it it ends up in a really great place where it, it's complex in the sense that like there is mournfulness running through the entire movie on top of all of the other things that you explore and it it that mournfulness sort of transforms your understanding of each of these stories when you know that they were 
made possible by and sort of championed by somebody who is now gone. And that's sort of an incalculable loss to not only journalism and not only sort of like writing, but also like meaning making sort of like writ large, right? It sort of yeah. makes this case for um, journalists as as imbuing the the world with this sort of like spirit of what could and should be. And that spirit is sort of protected by and nurtured by editors. And when they the editor goes away, we are at risk of losing that thing and isn't losing that thing something that is so frightening and, and sad to consider, right? So like, it, I think it really is complex in that sense. I mean, and it, I mean, now that you say that, it's something that didn't even cross my mind, be per- partially because of like, you know, the movie's been on the shelf for a while. Um, but uh, it... it, it one of the things that's refreshing about it is that it it feels so um, disconnected from what's going on in the world today. Today, but you could you just made a very fair argument, I think, Harry, that you could easily look at that in uh, contrast to the kind of world we're given today with not only the state of journalism on a very on the nose kind of sure. comment, but also with just like I mean, human relationships, which is at the end of the day, I think, what we all come to Wes Anderson for, mm-hmm. and it's just that you know, the human relationships of how we ingest media and how we look for stories outside of ourselves in environments that are not our homes um, is just as valid and just as transformational as those that are interpersonal and familial, like we'll get to at the Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I, I think I think I understand that cri- the criticisms about low emotional temperature and stuff, but I, mm-hmm. I feel like Maybe that's just the beat of Wes Anderson movies that you have to get into, right? Because like these are deeply alienated, sort of dis- disaffected characters, and that oh, yes. can make relating to them difficult or something. But I don't know. I think it really worked for me this time. And I think the 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 aspect of as you mentioned with Grand Budapest Hotel, the you know Gustav's character is trying to like hold like as you mentioned the world around him, and that world is the hotel, and that's also like this kind of more disparate, low emotional temperature kind of thing. But I I I, I mean I think the thing that worked for me with that film is that third act fall, and it becomes not just the you know um, duties and responsibility of. Ray Fine's character, but his also uh, kind of interactions and almost like mentorship with uh, Zero. And that becomes such a like integral piece to me that it feels like I get that kind of high emotional right. temperature that I got from Royal Tenenbaums. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's like once he's gone, you understand what he was and what yeah, he was Yeah. Yeah. And so that's almost like what I, I mean, not to say like I wish the movie had done this because I hate sure. doing that, but. Uh, I mean, I I loved every scene with Bill Murray, but everyone every one of them felt cut short. And then you're yeah. given this obituary at the end, and I'm like, I barely got to know this guy, but I really loved like certain beats in the film, like the editor's funeral and the, um, you know, conversation like I mentioned earlier between him and Owen Wilson at the front of the film, uh, even like the little details like Jason Schwartzman's New Yorker esque doodle of him, um feel very warm and very much for the argument that there is this kind of family aspect at the newspaper. I wanted to get more of Elizabeth Moss and Fisher Stevens. It would have been great. Yeah. It's right. it's funny, right? Because like, I, I love the movie as it exists, but like hearing you describe that now, like I would have loved a movie about the French dispatch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So like, I almost like there, there was a part of me, I wrote it in our notes here. I, 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 I almost, and I hate the, 
runtime discourse that's happening uh, constantly in and out uh, about how long movies should be. But I I almost want this to be kind of a bloated. Like if he was going to get this insane, like yeah. give me a three hour Wes Anderson movie. I will sit down and soak in every minute of it. I would love a three hour Wes Anderson movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think Dan would agree. I mean, here's the thing. It's like you with the French dispatch, it is absolutely the most elaborate production design and sets that he's ever done. The shots are all over the place. He goes black and white. He goes color. He goes animation. Uh, Aspect he, ratios once again. Yeah, yeah. It, and it was funny. There's an amazing interview that Tilda Swinton does of him um, in Sight and Sound. Mm. It's in the October 2021 edition. Uh, and he talks about that. He basically says that... Um, you know, doing a film style in this way gave him the, the freedom to do whatever he wanted. And he said essentially that not having that arc gave him the ability to make what was ever in his head or in his heart yeah. in that moment. And that absolutely comes through. Yeah. But he admits in the same paragraph in the interview, I don't know if it actually works. He <laughs> says this. He says this on the yeah. release interview. And it's like... That to me is so, I mean, it's why I love him as a director and an artist. Like he's absolutely fearless. Like he just does exactly what he wants to do. He has such a strong and passionate vision for cinema. Um, And he kind of, you know, he puts himself out there on the ledge and sometimes he falls over. And in this case, for me, it's sort of, you know, I can't, you know, if I was the Mick LaSalle situation, that's a little bit harsh. Now that that actual review that he gave was at a it was right after the premiere, I think, in the San Francisco area, and it, it seemed kind of like a rust review that he had to put out or something. Sure, it, not a great review a hot uh, take. from him. Yeah, hot take exactly. Um, there's no way on a scale of one to five you could objectively give this lower than a three. Like it's just it's not yeah, possible. Yeah, right. Like it, it, it's such a beautiful film. You could look at it in so many different directions, and it works just as a, a piece of art. Yeah, I mean, even um, if it, even if there wasn't any dialogue, it's like Wes correct, Anderson yeah. is is building cinematography that nobody else can touch. Absolutely. Like, true. So, I mean, that's the thing for me. It's never going to reach the heights of, to me personally, of Rushmore or World Town of Bombs or Grand Budapest Hotel. Um, but there's something magical here mm-hmm. that you can't deny that you, you know, if you love film, you're probably going to get something out of this. Um, but I do kind of wonder, you know, uh, viewing it in comparison to the Royal Tenenbaums, you know, how you guys see it in relation to that film, which is just as twee as this, um, but has a central story, a central arc. How do we feel like he navigates between the, you know, is this, is the criticism here that I'm making, um, accurate or, um, sort of proven that if Wes Anderson dives into himself too much uh, and is almost given too much freedom, it's the old sort of editor versus filmmaker argument. Ironically, here. right? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or like, you know, when we talked about this on the, another episode about like a writer versus their editor and the New Yorker has a huge example of this sure. uh, with Raymond Carver. We talked about it last episode. Right. I do wonder you know, like, uh, well, first of all, how do you guys relate this film in terms of your love of it compared to a Royal Tenenbaums? 
you know, I think that there's so much to consider. So I'm just going to throw the first thing that came into my mind, which yeah. is that while both films have Robert Yeoman behind the lens, mm-hmm. uh, the, the 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 two big differences I feel, uh, and there was an interesting interview with uh, editor Andrew Weisblum of Dis- who did French Dispatch, where basically you know Wes has gotten to this point where he's got everything mapped out. He's got an animatic. He's got the you know incredibly detailed storyboards. He even like starting with Fantastic Mr. Fox started doing like voice dubs of the characters to like show the delivery of each line uh to his actors so it's it's almost as if uh yeah he's diving into himself because he has so much total control Mm -hmm. it's that you know old you know maybe it's a myth uh i feel like there might be some truth to it and i say this still as you know someone 20 years older where like the hunger that this guy probably still had in the throes of making Royal Tenenbaums. Yes, he's uh, off this high of like critical acclaim for Rushmore and finally like getting, you know, Buena Vista to distribute his films. Um, But he still feels like he has something to prove. Uh, and, And he has that kind of more, I mean, he, and the other thing that, uh, Weissbloom says is that like, they kind of just do, you know, whatever they want. It's like on the fly he's got all these other things mapped out, but when it comes to like sitting down in the editing booth, like they're just trying different things out because they have the time and the money to do that. Whereas, you know, Tenenbaum's different editor. Also uh, the music is Mark Mothersbaugh from Devo instead of Alexandre Desplat, who's very much more like ornate traditionalist um, kind of uh, composer. And you have also this very, you know, tight-knit cast that is having to be convinced to be in his movies rather than like lining up around the block to and that gene hackman performance is like iconic partially because you know it took him so long to sign on to the movie to agree to be in it because it's not the kind of movie you would ever expect gene hackman to be in especially back in 2001 well, it's so funny because it's like you got Gene Hackman and then Royal Tenenbaum is such a weird fit. He's like almost playing against type super deliberately, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. Gene, Gene Hackman is like this amazing, austere, imposing, like in, incredible actor. And then you have him like talking like he's in disco or something, right? <laughs> um, that's a really good point. I, I think that that I would characterize it similarly. I um, It's hard not to think with the argument you just laid out that um, French Dispatch is like very much an exaltation of uh, Wes Anderson's established style. He's having fun with it as a master, right? Whereas everything about Royal Tenenbaum seems like it wants to prove itself, right? Like yeah. I'm, I'm comparing even the first scene where like we we get the great narration with Alec Baldwin, and then um, we are, we're introduced to all of the characters. That's the most French Dispatch part of that movie, right? But it's so different because there it's like, you can make a movie like this. Like I can establish characterization and make you care about these people this way. I, everything about that definitely feels hungry. Exactly. Like you said, right. Where it's like, this is, this is Wes Anderson, like proving his thesis, you know, whereas with French dispatch, I don't get any sense that he feels he needs to prove himself. It, it's almost a movie that, that exalts in the security of being established for sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what's what's your history with Royal Tenenbaums, Dan? Because I know, like, you were coming off of 
like being obsessive over Rushmore. Yeah. I, I I loved Rushmore, but I was still like very much obsessive over Bottle Rocket. And, you know, it's a very formative time to see a movie. You and I are seniors in high school when this comes out. Yeah. I mean, I think I saw it four times in the theater. Yeah, me like too, that. man. It just I watched it over and over again. It and I think on the rewatch I had about a week ago. Um, and I've, you know, I have the Criterion edition of it. I've, you know, watched it over the years. Whenever it's on TV, I just, you know, I sit with it for a bit. Um, I'm just blown away by how well it's held up. There is something in, you know, for all the criticisms of uh, Wes Anderson kind of being precious about his, you know, his style and stuff. That hard work and precision is what makes that film so uh, age so oh, yeah. well. It is like every single shot is composed meticulously. And then that's, you know, to sort of t- think about the production of Royal Tenenbaums, you know, getting Gene Hackman was very tough. It took a very long He wrote the part for him. Um, he took a lot of convincing. Finally, Gene Hackman's agent was basically like, you should do this. That's the only reason he did the film. And on set, it was not easy. Him and Wes got into fights constantly. Uh, there's even one famous incident where, uh, you know, Gene Hackman tells off... Um, Chaz in the game room closet. Well, what actually that actually happened with him and Wes, mm-hmm. where they're basically <laughs> almost coming to blows because Wes had such a specific, um, almost I think in one of the interviews they called him a, a kind of a gentle general on set, where his vision was so confident and so um, de- decisive that it could really rub some of the actors the wrong way. But yeah, yeah I mean, looking so back at sense. it now, that style just. It, it fuses the film with something very special that feels timeless in a way. Yeah, uh, it felt it, like a classic when it came out. It's such a it, he's got to be on the like far side of the spectrum, right? Like I, I just yeah. saw a Licorice Pizza too, and it's like you can tell in that movie they were all having fun and they were all improvising and ad libbing and sort of just like grooving with it. Imagine trying to ad lib in a Wes Anderson movie; right? <laughs> he'd be so mad. I mean, like he's got to be Not an absolute fascist on the set. And yeah, like, yeah, it's it's, you know. it's funny. Like, there's a New Yorker interview with him now, and uh, the editor goes, basically of the interviewer goes, "You know, so how are you on set?" And he goes, "Oh, I'm, you know, I let the actors do their thing." And then Jeffrey Wright like literally jumps in the interview, and he's like, "Oh, well, I have a different perspective on that." And then that's, <laughs> where I got, that's where I got the gentle giant or general thing coming from. Like, yeah, he controls his area like without a doubt. Um, but I mean, I think the results sort of speak for themselves with a movie like the Royal Tenenbaum. I think Royal Tenenbaums might be the example, right? Like you were saying. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I think, you know, you had definitely ensemble elements in Bottle Rocket and Rushmore, but essentially you have protagonists. And you could definitely argue that Royal is the titular protagonist of the Royal Tenenbaums, but that's where it really like kind of gets into this new territory that felt very exciting i remember at the time and still felt exciting rewatching it the other day where there's this kind of expansiveness to that universe even if yeah. it's just that you know brownstone and eli's house and a couple other locations the hotel um also seeing i definitely felt like some you know precursors foreshadowing to grand budapest there too um where you had this kind of uh element that is still very kind of small because yes, it's just one family, but because of like you mentioned Harry earlier, like uh, Alec Baldwin's narration and like the chapter book style of it, right? There's this kind of 
don't know. It felt like very eye-opening at the time, I remember, where it's like – and somebody did a review. Uh, I think it was just like a user review that I I read somewhere where they said like uh, – I think maybe you put it on here, Dan, in our notes about like watching a Russ Anderson movie is like uh, reading a novel and like yeah. picturing it in your head. Yeah. And it's just like – especially as I'm like, you know, thinking more seriously about literature for the first time in my life as a senior in high school and like thinking about what I'm going to do in college, that really resonated. Yeah, it's like my gosh, like films can be literary, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, and this is maybe it's the most literary movie in the sense that he literally frames it that way, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. The movie opens with you being like Wes Anderson taking you by the hand and saying like, "Okay, read a book." Like this is you reading a book now. Remember that. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Um, uh, it's funny. You, you, it's funny you picked that line out because that's a YouTube comment. Yeah, that's a YouTube <laughs> comment that I found on the only helpful YouTube comment that's ever been posted. Maybe. No, I mean, you gotta, you gotta troll through YouTube. There's some good stuff out on there. But to me, that is like it's my one of my favorite things that someone said about Wes Anderson because that's really what it is about his work. Absolutely, it is so clearly a story that is imagined in the richest sense possible, and I don't know what it is about his imagination. It's pure imagination. And it is, I don't know what it is about his ability to do that, but it makes those stories seem to live on forever. Right. Um, And that's what makes, that's what makes even something like French Dispatch work for me so well is that mm -hmm. his, the realization of his storybook sensibilities, like in a novel, it creates this sense where the, the themes and the, the through lines that he's driving at can permeate the multiple stories, right? And maybe yeah. it did it better in Royal Tenenbaums, but Royal Tenenbaums is a is a novelistic novel or a movie, not just in in the sense of the framing, but also that there are a million characters in, in side plots, right? But all of those side plots actually contribute to the to the primary message really, really well, and and they exactly. integrate with each other so well. And I think that the only way you do that is by exactly what you described, Daniel, right? Like it it has to be like a um, a novel that you're picturing. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like you, you kind of have to go there with him. And I think you know one of the things about Wes Anderson is there is this instant backlash to him. Yes, uh, it, it's gotten kind of weird because we've grown up with it. Like you guys remember when Rushmore came out, Bottle Rocket. Nobody saw Bottle Rocket, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, Rushmore comes out, and you're like very twee, but wasn't big enough to have backlash. Really, mm-hmm. Royal Tenenbaums is where it really started. Uh, that sort of instant sort of this is weird and you see and I, I love reading through like these comments and stuff because you get people that are, that are like there's an old Rushmore interview uh, with him and Charlie Rose and like some of the YouTube comments were like I love his movies but all his characters are really weird and I don't know why <laughs> right? and I kind of wonder what do we do with this large group of people that approach his films with that sort of instant distaste to it right and like, where does that come from? You know, like I, is it just bullshit? Like American cowboy toxic masculinity <laughs> where like, we're so yeah. afraid of anything that is sort of like openly twee and not hyper masculine that it feels like it, we feel like it reflects on us poorly if we like that or something, because like that it's so visceral and immediate, it like is. you said, that that hatred of Wes Anderson or like and to the point where like even his staunchest defenders have to like account for it, right. They have to be like, yeah. well, you have to like his style. It's like, fuck off. Right. Like I, <laughs> I think is he's, he makes great movies. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I, I agree with that. That's, it's so weird. And 
I mean, his characters are weird and they live in weird worlds, but like, guess what? So do we. So, right. uh... you know what I find so bizarre about specifically Royal Tenenbaums and like the advent of uh, franchise movies kind of dominating the industry in the early 2000s. And yet still, like even in those franchises, like I'm I'm just quickly searching the box office for 2001 and the top two movies are harry potter and shrek and <laughs> you know especially with hindsight we see that as just kind of like very populist uh kind of money grabbing um but you might have some nostalgia for it i ter- personally don't and yet still like the themes of those films and even some of the aesthetics especially of the harry potter universe are essentially like outsider and uh like um uh, ornate and uh, you you might even say like very like specifically aesthetically rendered right mm-hmm. um, maybe those are two opposite ends because Shrek very much represents kind of like the the ugliness of <laughs> you know new animation in the new millennium but you have this really kind of thematic stronghold which maybe is what you know brought Wes over to the to the world of Disney, like to the point where like I can, I can stream fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs on Disney plus right next to like the most like awful generic bullcrap, like home sweet home alone. Uh, And yet you have this, you have this uh, very, very much like prevalent um, kind of weirdness. And the other thing that kind of blows my mind uh, just as a personal example of this, uh, my mother-in-law love her to death. But yeah. she 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 keeps calling whenever Wes Anderson comes up in conversation. She's like, every movie of his feels like a nightmare that I want to get out of. Oh, wow. And yet one of my That's mother-in-law's wild. favorite films is Napoleon Dynamite. Interesting. Which <laughs> like, is well, very much known for like cribbing so much of like the pastel and but, uh, kind of aesthetic of Wes Anderson. I, I love I love that distinction. Um <laughs> The thing there too is what I find so fascinating. And I had to highlight this in our notes, uh, going through the critical response of Royal Tenenbaums. It's all off the charts, you know. Like the critics love it. It's got a great Letterbox score. It's God tier on Letterbox essentially, which makes sense, right? Yeah, because that's where Wes Anderson fans go to hang out. Um, but the cinema score was a C minus. Yes, and that is like a C minus cinema score is essentially like an F. Like a major release very rarely goes below a B and a C minus is just a really horrific score. I wonder what it, what it is, you know, because that's the people that showed up opening night, Friday night to see this. And that was their score for it. They absolutely hated the film, but now it has this really robust sort of, um, stature to it. Is Uh, how do we navigate any of that? Is is Wes Anderson's style of characterization just that inaccessible, I wonder? I mean, I, I keep going back to that weird character's comment, right? Yeah. Because yeah. that, I mean, I think that's a really weirdly good point, because all of his characters are deeply alienated people who don't feel like they belong in the world that they inhabit, even though that world created them. And it, it manifests in such, like, behaviors that are that are disaffected and uh self-destructive and and weird right like i mean all of the royal tenenbaums characters are deeply weird messed up people right that's kind of the point of the movie and i just wonder if like 
if we as sort of, and I don't know, maybe the cinema score is outside of America, but like, especially in America, I wonder if like we have a very limited accepting acceptance of what is allowed to be weird. Where like, if if you want a character who is weird or who is alienated, it better be with stoicism and rugged individuality, right? And and it has to be characters that are like that that de- depart from the world in order to. Um, be rugged and manly on their own and and maybe characters whose alienation doesn't manifest that way or people were not as comfortable with right because like it is it is more uncomfortable to confront the fact that um that uh um richie is in love with Margot than it is to like confront a character who has given up on the world or something right yeah i think it's a great point because there's there's an acceptable weird and unacceptable weird and an acceptable weird, the one I always go back to is Zach Galifianakis' character in Hangover. Super weird guy, but like it kind of fits into this sort of haha funny, let's laugh with him and Adam at the same time. Right. Um, very popular character, uh, but super, super weird. Wes Anderson characters are like, they're intellectuals. They are alien to their immediate surroundings. It, it, he almost goes out of his way to make the characters unlikable to the average American, I would say. Right. Like they're just well, not likable. Like no one in Royal Tenenbaums, like who can identify with any of those people? Like in right. like Nebraska, no offense, Nebraska. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're all, you know what I mean? Like test, how, right? how are you going to identify with them? You know, I'm not a playwright. I'm not like a novelist. I'm not like a, you know, it's he, but th- therein lies the reason why I love it because I know that it's a creation and the average person, I don't think gets that. And to me, the, dis, the, the distaste is one of, he's essentially a postmodern filmmaker where he oh, shows man. you the tools of creation and people cannot stand that because I, they want to go to a movie and feel like I'm disappearing and this is all real, but I know that it's imaginary. They don't want to know that, Hey, this is imaginary. He's telling me it's imaginary, you know? Mm. Man, I'm I'm so glad you said that. I've been trying not to say postmodern like this whole podcast. <laughs> oh no, I think we say that, it at least ten times a show. Oh, I, I love think he's pretty late in the game. Like well. He's like maybe the great meta postmodernist of our time in terms of filmmaking, right? He's a he's a person who is using the tools of postmodernism to comment on what postmodernism has wrought on society, right? It yeah. has made all of these weird, hyper individual, hyper isolated people who were created by their circumstances in their lives, but who simultaneously feel deeply disaffected by those things, right? Because of culture or society or or what have you. And like his style is the perfect mechanism for exploring that because it is similarly alienating, right? It's like yeah. you don't understand the world that these people are in and you don't understand exactly how they came to be the way they are, but you can empathize with them in this refracted sort of like yeah. Through the looking glass way. Exactly. And it yeah, it, it works so well for me, especially in something like Royal Tenenbaums, where it's all on the field, right? Like all of these yeah. characters are exactly supposed to be like that. Um I you you also mentioned like that these are all like rich, unapproachable people. I wonder if there's like a class element to that. Um yeah. I yeah. also wonder if there's like a I in you know, I'm not a queer person, so I don't have the right to say this, but I have always wondered if like there's just a lot of like sort of like queer phobia surrounding Wes oh, Anderson's movies. hundred percent. Cause yeah, like all of his characters are queer coded, right? Like every yeah. last one of the Tenenbaums is. 
Yeah, exactly. And I would say that like it, it makes I think his sensibility um makes people uncomfortable on some level. Uh yeah. it's just not the type of aesthetic uh the type of people that they're just used to understanding or empathizing with. So but and, despite that that horrific cinema score, I mean this is kind of like where he bloomed in his career, correct. right? Yeah. Yeah. So yes. like how how do you how do you square that and like even to the point where now like French Dispatch had you know the best uh, COVID era per theater average <laughs> on its weekend of release right yeah, yeah. World Tenenbaums makes uh two point six times its production budget in worldwide box office receipts like this guy explodes onto the scene yeah it's partially with the help of you know Disney and the critical acclaim hold held over from Rushmore and maybe partly also I remember part of the reason Rushmore uh kind of exploded under the scene because it was you know heralded as the the return of Bill Murray right yeah um yeah but what point. what what's going on here like how how did this movie get such a bad focus group score and yet still you know end up being a reasonable hit that you know cr- you know, kicked off this 20 year journey for the auteur Wes Anderson. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting because it's also like there's not and this is me being haughty and I, I don't mean I I don't think I'm better than anybody. Right. But like, th- is there a little bit of the Coen Brothers effect where like people feel pressured to like Coen Brothers movies because <laughs> it makes them sound smart? You know what I mean? But there like, is. I don't yeah. think yeah. anybody feels that way about Wes Anderson movies. Yeah, I, I don't know. I would argue that there there is definitely within certain groups of people. I remember when Steve Zizou came out. I don't know where I was. I was around some arty people. And it kind of, there was a sort of pressure, I think, to think that it was really good. Um, and, I think, you know, you know, what, what is it about this sort of polarity and how, how did that come to be? I mean, like, I don't know. Can we, tr- let's go ahead and trace the uh, political uh, oh, divergence no. that is happening <laughs> now to Royal Tenenbaums. I think that was yeah. the moment. It's George where Bush's we split. fault. Is that what we're going? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Royal Tenenbaums is going to cause the Second Civil War in the United States. I'm going to call it right now. <laughs> um, but I mean, uh, there's something. But there's something to that, though. I'm not, I mean, I am BSing, but like there is there's a type of person in this country who sees stuff like this and says, oh, that's interesting. That's cool. There's another type that sees it and says, that's weird and gross. I don't get it. Go away. Right. It's two different personality types. You Wes know, Anderson people who is are making novel seeking for the, people who aren't. The loathsome coastal elites. Well, middle America can't <laughs> stand his his tween fairy-like movies, right? I mean, I, th- it's not that far. I mean. <laughs> it's an overgeneralization, but there's there, there's a kernel of truth to the, the point that, um, I mean, I, I've been struggling with this. Ever since, like, I've taught film studies at the high school level, and I'm obsessed with Wes Anderson and one of my kids after a character from one of his movies, and yet, like, I can't find a justifiable place for him on my syllabus, and, like, I just don't feel like that's a it's, – it's, it works as an entry point for, um, you know, a, a class where I'm trying to, like, open up the world of cinema – you know, and it makes a lot more sense to do that with Bong Joon Ho or yeah. with Ridley Scott or you know something like that. And I think God, that's that there's fascinating. That's yeah, sad. that is really fascinating. There, there's something where I'm stuck on it because it's and maybe it, you know, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, Occam's Razor. 
it's just the idiosyncrasy is at such an exorbitant level, right? Yeah. Right. And like it's it, it Who's feels the like magic. Two? What's that? Who's in entry point two? Like that's the he's such a destination. Absolutely, right. Like there's no who who is out there copying when uh, Wes Anderson besides Noam Baumbach, who's not. Hey, but also the collaborator of his. Oh, was he? What was he collaborator? I forget. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's why I don't like that that much. Um, oh my gosh, I love Fantastic Mr. Fox. <laughs> yeah, I saw that three times in the theater, and I just couldn't. I couldn't. I almost had this weird sadness to it. Like, why can't I connect? It totally to this does. Movie? <laughs> well, that's why I laughed when Chris you brought up that it's on Disney Plus because I love this idea of a bunch of kids being like, "Oh, we're gonna watch this great animated movie about this middle age <laughs> oh, crisis." Dude. That it's this guy is going through. I know my kids love it though. But I thought it was bizarre awesome. when I was like 28 when it came out. I was like, right. This is awful. <laughs> but no, I think yeah, that's a really yeah. Who, uh, where does he sit? You know, obviously we all love him. Um, he's going to continue to make films for the next you know 20 years easily. Um, where is he going to sit? Like, where does he sit versus the Coen Brothers versus I don't know who's in the like, Spielberg like. Spielberg, Tarantino, right? Yeah, I mean, Tarantino. Yeah. Like, who? Where does he sit in that, in that sort of on the on the throne there, if at yeah. all? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it feels like he's the if 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 Spielberg is the king and Tarantino's the uh, cranky prince, then <laughs> Wes is like the 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 court jester that nobody really understands the jokes of. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Right. But he's still a fixture. He's still he'll, he'll going... always be a fixture. Yeah, like, there's going to yeah. be um, film students in their 20s in 50 years that are going to be Wes Anderson snobs, mm-hmm. right? Like the, he is always going to have a group of people that will follow him, and maybe you know, in a, a long time from now, there's going to be people aping his style a lot more. Um, has anybody really tried to do him now? Like. And, and great- like what's fascinating about that too is that I feel like they don't because not just because they couldn't do it, but because there's almost like a, a stigma to the Wes yeah. Anderson style where they like don't want to be dismissed as cutesy and twee and minor the way that his movies can be. Yeah, he's also like very easy to imitate, but almost impossible to really capture. Yeah what makes right. his movies so interesting and, and kind of like versus saying magical on a level, because that's, that's the magic of Wes Anderson. It's like, you, know, you don't know what it is. It, it, 2001 was also the year of Amelie. Right. Um, and I think we saw a lot of that kind of quirky, mm-hmm. uh, like whimsical, precious. Yeah. Whimsical style uh, throughout the course of the two thousands. I mean, you can draw a straight line. I think at the very least from Wes Anderson to, like Diablo Cody and Juno. Absolutely. Yeah, true. Also to uh, a lesser extent, like a lot of those kind of mm, overly whimsical uh, films starring comedians that are dramatic, like uh, Stranger Than Fiction. Um, okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Like Little Miss Sunshine, elements. can we count that yeah, maybe? Yeah, Little Miss Sunshine, that's a good one too. Um, but th- those movies are all like so much louder right and also still less far less idiosyncratic oh they're dumb compared to right yeah, that's also true. maybe dumb's not the right <laughs> blunted yeah yeah so i think that like it's just not as there's still people like being inspired and influenced by him in spades uh but it's it, it 
nobody's got the nobody's got like I, I i thinking about this in comparison to like how much aping of tarantino there was right in the late yeah. 90s right and beyond and yeah. it's just like that's the, I don't know. It, there's a there's the there's the postmodern argument about it too, where it's just like there's it's recycling of recycling. But with Wes Anderson, the the, the one of the, what makes him such a great postmodern artist is that you can try to ape him, but you will almost ind- indubitably fail. Well, and I yeah. love I love the the metaphor of recycling, right? Because I think that the difference is when Tarantino recycles something, you can see all of its constituent elements. Yes, and true. when Wes Anderson recycles something, it's unrecognizable, right? Like <laughs> I think that, and you're gonna have to forgive me. This is this is me being completely on my at problematic bullshit. But like honestly, Wes Anderson reminds me a lot of like David Foster Wallace in some ways, right? Sure. Where like I keep yeah. thinking about the forward to Infinite Jest, which again, apologies to everybody listening and just throwing up and throwing things at their uh, <laughs> headphones, I guess. I don't know. Um but and like there's a there's a forward where he says that like the thing about David Foster Wallace's novels is that they're like a spaceship that is comp- constructed out of all of these alien materials where you go inside and you have no idea how it works. But if all of those materials were things that were found on Earth, right? That's kind of how I feel about Wes Anderson, right? Where it's like, he always alludes to all of these um, inspirations. And I have no doubt that he is like Abed from Community, right? Where he's like a walking encyclopedia of film. But I don't see them in his movies to the extent that I do in like a Tarantino because all of it is so refracted and so like reprocessed and re-understood for the purposes of what Wes Anderson is applying them toward that it doesn't feel like he's a filmmaker who is like you like you said Chris like in conversation with anybody because the yeah. conversations he's having are so weird right <laughs> right right yeah. he's doing a, a movie that's half New Yorker half uh like weird French like 70s films like it's yeah. it's so uh obscure that you can't like find an easy through line with tarantino it's like you just go straight to the exploitation films well but Uh, i mean the tarantino sort of foil is awesome because both postmodern filmmakers right but like tarantino it seems like you say recycled he does like a collage or pastiche is the term they usually use like it feels like he's cutting pieces out of other art forms and especially film and tv and putting them together in his own way and stitching them together I feel like with Wes Anderson, he's taking music, film, all these different things and kind of like almost like covering them and then stitching it together. There, There's a, like you said, there's a processing <laughs> that Anderson is doing that Tarantino kind of isn't. I don't mean that to disparage him. I love Tarantino. Oh, no, yeah. Tarantino uh, fucking rules. Like, I, yeah. Yeah. But there's just I, a, there's an element of like yeah. it's that imagination, magical dust that Anderson I'm, puts on all this stuff visualizing two kindergartners at a table and tarantino is the kid that's like violently cutting things out of magazines and pasting them haphazardly whereas like wes anderson has somehow already at the age of five learned how to crochet and (laughs) cross stitch and he's creating these like beautiful little ornate masterpieces or just like you you go to like a like a modernist um museum and, and you look at a sculpture and then the the artist is like you know i made this all out of uh doorknobs or something you're like, yeah, yeah. what the fuck yeah. are you talking about like i yeah. that's not true that can't be true <laughs> <Not a thing. laughs> whereas like when when tarantino like you see every single individual it's it's a past, pastiche right or like a yeah. collage like you said absolutely 
yeah it's um i don't know there's there's just something there's something wonderful wonderful about wes anderson and as much as i sort of didn't love the french dispatch there is um all of his sort of magical dust all over it and you can you can dive into this movie and feel like you're at home with him just like in his mind in his imagination really uh and it's a fun place to play around in i don't know i mean that's like the draw to his films I would like it if there's some sort of emotional story going on that I connect with, but you know, you can't ask for everything, right? Um, how would you guys? How would you guys? You know, in terms of French Dispatch, how do you guys want to close this out? Like, what? What are some closing thoughts about Wes Royal French Dispatch? What do we? How do you want to cap this off? I'll go first, so you can have the last word, Harry, as our guest. I think wow. that. Uh, the biggest thing I'm saying, and we've already, and we knew this was going to be a supersized episode, but oh, yeah. we're already past it. I'm going to keep it simple because there's this thought that keeps popping up in my head um, as we have these conversations. And I I think it's true not only for Wes Anderson, actually, but uh, and maybe it's part of the reason that Wes Anderson is so uh, unmatched, um, but also such a you know, integral part of the fabric of cinema over the past 20 years, as we've been looking at on this film of film, this season of film trace uh, of trying to understand like these uh, kind of pinpoints. There's two other 2001 films that we looked at um, this year, uh, Memento and Donnie Darko. Yeah. And I have to say, even though I still love Donnie Darko (laughs) and still have, you know, some understanding of why people enjoy Christopher Nolan. Uh, There's such a like grand maturity um, to Royal Tenenbaums Mm -hmm. that I rewatch it and really felt like that moment. Like I, I can pinpoint the moment when I watched Memento and I was just like, Whoa, that was cool. I can pinpoint the moment where I watched Donnie Darko and I was like, Whoa, that was weird. But then, but to be able to do the cool, the weird, and like the thoughtful, emotional, intellectual, yeah. like that is just part and parcel of why Anderson can still make a movie and I will do whatever I can to see it, even in a pandemic and pay $20 on premium BOD, <laughs> because there's something uncanny about what he does and yet something still like vital and essential because uh, to, to use one more example that I want to uh, pin in here before we close out is like, I really saw myself in pieces of Chaz and Eli and Richie um, when I, watching Royal Tenenbaums at both as a senior in high school and then rewatching it over and over again through my 20s. And now, uh, 20 years later, like it really finally hit me for the first time how touching the romance is between Ethelene and Henry. Oh man. Uh, that the one scene where he interrupts her at work, quote unquote, right. she says, it's, uh, I mean, first of all, it's just Angelica Houston and Danny Glover, are like absolute tight. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's unbelievable, okay. but yeah. man, Oh God, I was, I was weeping. And so I feel like there's this kind of really encapsulating, just like solidness to revisiting this film that i really don't think i felt with any other movie that we reviewed this season and it comes back to like you know uh 
I'm I'm glad I looked back at it because there was a part of me that, you know, wondering like, you know, the, I mean, Gene Hackman's kind of uh, uh, neuroses and the, you know, attempted suicide with Elliot Smith playing in the background, you know, after Elliot Smith did commit suicide uh, a few years afterwards. And it's just like, there's so much to it that's layered and that, feels like uncomfortable um when you think about it but when you're there in the moment with the screen uh playing it back it just feels so perfect and i i I, once again improving my fanboyism but it i can't i can't imagine that necessarily happening with french dispatch but i can definitely imagine it with me going to see whatever Wes Anderson's doing in 2041 with my son, whose name is from his first film. Wow. Yeah. How about that? Uh, these days, Nico needle drop. That's maybe uh, oh my, my favorite needle drop in a movie. I think about it maybe every day with Gwyneth Paltrow, like walking yep. in slow motion out of the bus. Oh my God. <laughs> Her yeah. best, best role probably. Uh, maybe. Uh, oh yeah. yeah, almost certainly, right? Like I don't yeah. know. She's not like a I don't think she's a great actress, but this is the best argument for her as a great actress. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Um yeah, I don't know. I think it's it's weird, right? Like I this this is very galaxy brain of me, I suppose, but I've always really appreciated Wes Anderson not just because of like his style and and his um approach and and everything, but also because like in a really unique way, I feel like he is utilizing his art to communicate and help teach things that are important and have been moving to me. Um, And that's particularly where the sort of postmodernism comes in, right? Like, I think he's making movies in a scary time that are about a scary time in a lot of ways. And it's a scary interior time or a scary psychological time, right? Like, I think he's making movies about characters who are like, fundamentally isolated and who are fundamentally sort of like looking back at a world that isn't made for them at the end of that world. You know what I mean? And especially I, I hate to make everything about climate change, but like, especially (laughs) movies that are sort of like genuinely urgent. I think weirdly, almost all of his movies feel that way, right? Because they feel like they're preparing me to sort of understand my own alienation and isolation and cope with it or deal with it in some way and the utility that storytelling or um self-determination or identity building has in doing that right and and the role that we have to play in telling our own stories and sort of like self-creating and recreating ourselves and why that's difficult and why we're all neuroatypical now (laughs) and um it, there's just something every time I see a Wes Anderson movie, I feel like I've come away with something that is like that is really going to teach me something about how I should be thinking about now, you know, and, and how I should be thinking about myself right now. And so it's it's always struck me as weird when people say that, like, his his movies are sort of like disaffected or they're they're not really um, timely because they've always felt that way to me. They've always felt like like a. a um like a a media saturated kid who is trying to figure things out with the tools that he has to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. And as a person who is media obsessed and who has always struggled with those same ideas, that's very appealing to me. But 
I I can recognize that maybe not everybody grew up with quite as much fucking sure. old movies and anime and video games and whatnot as I did, you know. So maybe <laughs> that's part of it. But for me, it's always been he he hits me really hard every yeah. time. Oh yeah, every every film, even though I don't love it, it, it hits me something. Uh, hits me in the right spot every single time. Um, Harry, thanks for being on. We really appreciate yes. it. Fantastic Thank you. Guest. That was so much fun. It was so yeah. great to talk about Wes Anderson with with you guys, especially since you're such big fans. <laughs> yeah, well, and we will yes. definitely have you back on here as we get into season. Uh, I guess are we doing seasons, Chris? Maybe we should talk about that real quick. The reboot. Yeah, we're we're rebooting this podcast, everybody. Oh wow. Uh, we uh, have kind of grown um, away from this uh, kind of back and forth we've done between new movies and old movies. We're not kind of, uh, what's the word? We haven't quenched our thirst for tracing film history. Yeah, we're not going deep enough. We want to go deeper. Yeah. So <laughs> the basic gist of uh, upcoming um, batches or cycles or seasons of film trace is that we're going to try to focus not only on uh, a film per episode, but also uh, look at a particular subgenre or keyword of film uh, over the course of five or six episodes and look not only at a new film, which we will begin every cycle with, and then go 10 years into film history, staying within that subgenre or keyword. We're going to start it off. It's pretty good segue since we just talked about postmodernism, the idea of postmodern horror movies or self-aware horror movies, if you will, um, with the impending release of Dan, take it away. Scream coming out on January 19th. Uh, We'll start with that and then do some older films to kind of follow that theme and then kind of do like a grand finale uh, to that batch of films and then kind of move on to the next theme that we have. But yeah, we're really excited about it. We're going to get a website up, uh, kind of do some releases with each episode. Um, so we'll obviously share that on social and all that. Yes. Uh, but yeah, it's an exciting new uh, year for us in 2022 with Film Trace. Uh, Harry, where, uh, where can people find you? Hey, thanks. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Shiitake Harry, and you can find Trilove Podcast at Trilove Pod, I believe. Awesome. Uh, we will gladly have you back on the season. Please, uh, I would love to. I uh, just got to find a theme that you love. Uh, we'll have you back on for that. Uh, anyway, thank you for listening, everybody. This has been season five of Home Trace. Thank you.